capital. Quality of life will be dramatically different. Covid will change cities. People will try to rebuild. The US and China are not doing the right thing. Consume and spend. If we have a similar crash in our housing market. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. We would be utterly devastated. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, this is Thought Capital from Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Michael Pascoe. In this special series, we're looking to connect the dots on the effects of COVID-19 with the help of the experts from Monash Business School. Amidst the welter of daily commentary, it's easy to lose perspective about the connections between the economy, international relations, digital disruptions, and mental health, and how all are impacted by the pandemic. We're here to help you see the big picture, how it all fits together, how all the facets of this crisis affect us all. Much of the federal political focus for rebuilding the economy is on manufacturing and construction, but it's the service sector that has been hit hardest, where the scarring is worst, where the losses are greatest. With the choice being to adapt, hibernate or die, many small businesses have done their utmost to keep going, to change, to survive. COVID-19 changed consumer behaviour, so businesses have had to change too. Most obviously, online shopping, already a rising trend, has soared, and that's just one part of the service sector. So what does it take to survive in the service sector during this pandemic? Professor Tracy Danaher of the Department of Marketing. Welcome. Hi, Michael. Thanks for um, inviting me to chat about this today. It's a very interesting question because, as you can imagine, you know, COVID was so unexpected and it's had wide-ranging implications for the service sector, um, with a lot of organisations having to find ways to to pivot very quickly. So what we see is, in some ways, a spectrum of responses um, to the COVID crisis. We see organisations who are able to, you know, make minor adaptations to the services they provide to customers. In Melbourne, we see this in, you know, the cafes that are takeaway only, They'll have hand sanitizer available. There's um, 1.5 meter social distancing marks. So made minor adaptations that have allowed them to really keep their service viable. Then on the other end of that, we have services that have completely transformed. Some of them have realized that they can do things that are innovative and cutting edge and that they will continue to do into the future that represent um, you know, new revenue streams that wouldn't have existed to them if COVID hadn't have occurred. Such as? My favourite example is the wine industry. You sort of would think that you need to be present to get the true impact and that true experiential component of a cellar door wine tasting experience. Very quickly, they realised that that wasn't going to happen because of the COVID restrictions. So they very quickly started to use social media and do live streaming of wine tasting events. And they created a whole range of products around this. They sent out small bottles. They would then arrange um, a time and uh, a place to talk to their sommelier and talk to their winemakers and essentially have the Salador experience and the wine tasting experience done virtually. What's interesting about that is that a lot of wine clubs have now totally embraced this concept. 
And so now we have a situation where a winemaker is sending products all over Australia and therefore targeting that market that traditionally would have had to have come to them at the Yarra Valley. Um, and therefore the market is so much bigger. One of the wineries I spoke to was actually sending wine tasting packages um, to California. So now they were reaching people in America. This will augment the services that they provide going forward into the future and be a potentially very profitable additional revenue stream that the winemakers have said to me they just would have never thought was possible because in their head, the customer had to come to the cellar door to embrace this type of experience. Now you've been working with American colleagues on how some in the service sector have transformed to adapt to the new situation. What did that study find? Some of the things we looked at there, we took a very global perspective. Some services find it very hard to adapt. So if you think of services where you do have to physically go to receive um, the service being provided, doctor, going to have your hair cut, for example, those services are the ones other than the incidents of telehealth that have really suffered the most in the pandemic. Um, we then found on the other end of that was the services that are able to transform themselves. And in the US, there's a lot of really large management consultancy companies that are embracing um, huge innovations in technology delivered by companies like ServiceNow that basically allow you to manage your workflow much more productively. Corporate companies talking about reducing their commercial footprints by up to 20 or 30% they envisage an entire new way of working where the worker won't come in to work eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, five days a week. There'll be much more flexibility um, in that workflow, all managed by these digital platforms that can tell across an organisation with, you know, 100 different branches and 10,000 employees exactly what day David is going to come in and what hours you're going to come in it can organise deep cleaning of shared spaces between employees coming in and out of the organisation and collate all that and manage all that for them. So from big to small organisations, the impacts um, are very, very broad. COVID-19 hit the services sector hardest and it's the sector that's expected to suffer the most economic scarring even after the economy opens up again but it hasn't all been doom and gloom. You might think a services sector charity would be suffering double jeopardy, but Monash Business School accounting experts have been monitoring one such operation that could prove you wrong. And the accountants claim it's the accounting that made the difference. Well, they would claim that, wouldn't they? Martin Halfen, you are the CEO of The Fruit Box. What do you do? The Fruitbox is a business that commenced in 2000 um, in Melbourne. It essentially was delivering fruit to workplaces as an alternative tea room snack. And in 2009, we leveraged off our infrastructure and our database and we started delivering milk. Forward on to 2020, uh, the Fruitbox was doing about 35,000 deliveries to around 10,000 offices and workplaces with a true national infrastructure with about 300 uh, staff where we control the whole supply chain. You were running a complicated business with a lot of logistics and a lot of staff involved. What happened when COVID-19 struck? 
Oh, well, we were front and centre. Um, it hit the offices very quickly. It was quite a surreal experience. Um, in the course of around two weeks, we were losing around three or 400 accounts a day. So just before the end of March, uh, when COVID started to really ramp up, we had lost 75% of our business. What's that like as a mental strain? Well, it's, it's fight or flight. Um, at that stage, nobody really knew what was happening. Um, the governments were really just sort of taking it in like all of us were. We were very conservative. We, we straight away believed that having cash in the bank was the most important thing to do. So we started our plans. We started to uh, look at our rostering, our people, and we were developing plans for the worst-case scenario and protecting the cash in the bank as much as possible. That was before um, any government assistance was introduced. So JobKeeper and JobSeeker wasn't, you know, we weren't told about that till early April. By the end of March, because we were impacted so quickly, we had plans already sort of working out how, how long could we survive with the cash that we had built up over a period of time. Now you've got the fruit box as well as the one box. Where did that come from and what is it? We came up with a concept of delivering fresh produce to families in need. Um, it was a pilot program in 2017, which was fully funded by the fruit box. And over the course of three years, it's transitioned into a charity. It's more than doubled its output since we commenced. So the fruit box... Your business business has lost 75% of its customers. The one box supplying food to people in need obviously had soaring demand. How did you manage to balance the both? Well, fortunately, um, some of the principles that we adapted at the fruit box um, spilled over to the one box and we had a corpus in the one box and, and this year, Given the uh, difficulties, we've been able to rely and succeed through the monies that have been donated in the past. And to be honest, um, we've been quite successful in um, raising money during the course of the year. COVID's got its challenges and I think it's really going to amp up the need for food relief. You know, that's what the One Box does and uh, at the moment, that's something that has drawn the attention of um, foundations and uh, corporate donors. It just so happened that Associate Professor Ralph Cober and Dr Paul Fambar from the Department of Accounting were following one box throughout this turbulent time. Welcome to both of you. Why were you interested in this business? The operating model adopted by the one box is very different to that of other food relief charities. Uh, most food relief charities in Australia and internationally provide their beneficiaries with one-off packages of rescued food um, without guaranteeing future supply. However, the One Box's operating models very different. They provide um, their beneficiaries a weekly box of fresh produce, um, including fruit, vegetables, milk and bread. And they also do this for 40 weeks a year. And it's distributed through schools and community centres. So that was one aspect. The other aspect was the fact that the One Box program started as a CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility Initiative, within the Fruit Box. Um, and as it became more successful, this for-profit company decided to effectively spin off a charity 
or where we were unaware of any other sort of similar situation where a for-profit company created a charity, um, which they then continue to operationally and financially support. And what is it about the accounting of that that is interesting? The challenge for, for one box and for, in fact, for all charities is to be able to accurately measure the impact that they're having on their beneficiaries. And accounting and accounting numbers can only go so far in being able to measure and, and quantify that. What surprised you about what you saw? Um, the fruit box suffered a substantial decrease in financial revenues. So the one box was still being predominantly financially and operationally supported by the fruit box. And yet through this, there was that decision made to actually increase the reach of the one box program. So we then came up with this idea of what in the literature is called financial resilience and looking at how resilient the one box was um, and how it was able to expand operations. The very idea of, of a charity building up a financial reserve over many years is, is, is almost alien. The one box has prudently used uh, its uh, finances and kept uh, enough reserves to cope with the challenges that they were facing. What has one box changed in your conception of what accounting should do in charities? Or has it reinforced previously held beliefs? The literature on corporate social responsibility suggests that uh, commercial entities just use that as a, as a tag to show people that they are purpose-driven, to show that they're doing good in, in addition to making money. But here we see a, a, a fully integrated CSR operation. When Martin and, and his people uh, talk about uh, the one box, it is very much integrated into their corporate business. And I don't think we have seen that sort of a, a corporate social responsibility operation uh, discussed in the literature. So that's an interesting aspect. And the other aspect is, is the way they, they actually use accounting. So, for example, a simple thing like a target. Despite the pandemic, the, the annual target for the, uh, the one box really hasn't been uh, discarded. It's been changed, it's been reduced because of circumstances, but the focus at every meeting and every conversation that they seem to have is on that target and trying to meet that target. Because it is not just the target, it's, but it's what sits behind the target. The families who are in need and increasingly the new families that are coming uh, to uh, the schools and to the community centres looking for support from organisations like the One Box. It seems there is light at the end of the tunnel. Victoria is opening up, borders are being relaxed. Martin Halfen, how has the pandemic affected both the business and the charity on the other side? Things are more uncertain than ever before. I think that you know, we're entering a new period where things are meant to be opening up, but I do really feel that confidence is shattered, not just in Victoria, but in the wider community. And I think that there's going to be a slow reveal of the impacts that it's going to have on different industries, particularly when government packages cease in, in, in March. But from my point of view, the message that has probably been reinforced for us is let's stick to our game plan. Let's sort of remember what served us well in the past. Our strategy of protecting um, cash at the bank we believe is going to give us options down the track. I think we need to really understand 
what we're dealing with, you know, what the level of unemployment's going to be, what the, the level of need will be in the community. And then once we understand that, I think we'll adapt our strategies accordingly. And for the business, the fruit box, it seems a lot of people suggesting people will continue to work from home. There are a lot of empty floors of CBD offices around. What's that doing to you? Over the last uh, six months, we have acquired business on the back end of a lot of um, competitors, smaller smaller local competitors exiting the market or just not being able to open up their doors. I feel, unfortunately, it's going to be survival of the fittest. Uh, I think that the businesses that are well-leveraged and cashed up are going to survive the winter, so to speak, and are going to be there to gradually make their way back to uh, pre-COVID levels. A more broad question for the three of you. Being optimistic, we get a vaccine at some stage or the virus dies out. How long does the scarring last? How long do the lessons last before we go back to our old ways? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. We will go in some ways regress back to some of our old bad practices. I mean, that's, you know, being human. But I think we will also learn a few new things, I think. You know, the fact that you don't have to be, uh, you know, have your staff seated next to you in the same office so that you can eyeball them and make sure that they're actually doing work. I think we've, we've grown beyond that. There's certainly going to be a greater valuing of customers and staff, I hope, in terms of the value that they bring to the organisation. I do think there probably will be some lessons learned in terms of conservatism, companies not being maybe so highly leveraged, especially if, unfortunately, in the future, these pandemics or these crises become more common. It'll be more important to actually have your balance sheet in a position where you can cope with this increased level of uncertainty. I think there's going to be a fair bit of pain. And I think that what's going to happen is that it's going to force businesses to become a lot more efficient with their resources and what they've got. So I think we're going to go through a positive period of efficiency and, and bring it back to something like the one box and the people that we help with the one box. And the question I've always had is that the, the indicators and the reports and, and the studies are showing that there's one in five, up to one in five Australians that are having a problem with food insecurity on a month-to-month basis. And my question is that when people are hungry, how can we as a community and a country be as productive as we as we could be? Dealing with those social problems is going to be one of the real focus points of, of the transition when it comes to sort of you know, efficiency. And I'd like to think that we're going to become a bit more local focused. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity locally And um, I think that what's happening with this pandemic, I mean, by the pure fact that we have to shut um, borders as a result of it, is that we really have to look from within and address some of the issues that we have within and move forward with real opportunities that we have. So from my point of view is that there's going to be a correction period, but I think that as a result, we're going to make our way out of it in in a much more humble, realistic and productive way. The service sector obviously covers an enormous variety of industries, from deep cleaners to travel agents, from aged care to conference organisers. Professor Tracy Danaher, 
as you say, some can adapt, some can't. Those that can't, you expect most of them to fail? I would be much more optimistic than that. I think there's definitely going to be a shakeout of the service sector. There's no doubt that, you know, if we in Melbourne, for example, or Australia walk up and down our high streets, we see the proliferation of, you know, services and retailers, there's probably consequently going to be a shakeout um, of some of those businesses. But I think we should be reasonably optimistic about the future um, of services particularly in Australia where the government has stepped in and, you know, provided a lot of support. If you compare that to the UK and the US, for example, there's a lot more support for our service industries um, than there has been elsewhere. JobKeeper has certainly been a help. Most of the political talk in going forward has been about manufacturing and construction rather than the services side, despite services being the biggest sector of the economy. Will services need another wave of support? Yeah, I actually think they will. And particularly for the the smaller service businesses, the mum and pa service businesses that make up that big chunk of the service economy, that will definitely be needed into the future. And it's going to be ongoing, I think, to expect service businesses to simply open up and be able to regain their foothold in the market and even potentially pay back debt that they've accumulated during the lockdown phases. One adaption in the services sector that's a win can also turn into a loss in another part of the the sector. Working from home is a win, except it certainly comes at the cost of the commercial real estate sector. What's the balance? I think we're seeing, you know, a double-edged sword in so many elements that are coming out of of COVID. If you think of, you know, your traditional sit-down large restaurant, they have really suffered and struggled during the lockdowns in Melbourne. If you think of um, a small takeaway in your high street that didn't really cater to sit-down, they've actually had the best year that they've ever had. Even within hospitality and food service, we see some ends of that spectrum really suffering and other ends actually thriving. There are going to be winners and losers and it's going to be very different across the industries. It's very hard to predict, you know, how that's going to fall out. Your message overall is optimistic of people being inventive, being adaptive when they need to be. What about the pessimistic side? What about the services that have not been able to adapt? I do have a hopeful message because I think I see communities rallying to support their local businesses, you know, people going out of their way to buy takeaway or buy an extra coffee or, or whatever it may be. I think the human spirit is an incredibly optimistic one. People will try to rebuild. So I, I am optimistic. I'm very aware of the struggles that businesses are going through. But if we don't have optimism for the future, then that's a very difficult place to be. Tracy Danaher, thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Michael. Will our cities ever look the same with so many people working from home and the business districts deserted? What if people stop commuting? And what will be the impact on the price of your house? Tune in to the next episode of Thought Capital, connecting the COVID dots. Thought Capital is written and produced by Tina Zanu. Editor is Nadia Hume. Executive producer, Helen Westerman. If you'd like to find out more, go to monash.edu forward slash business. 
look for us wherever you listen to podcasts.